Now, for the rest of us in here, we're going to be in Judges. We're going to be in Judges uh, chapter 17 and 18 um, this morning. Now, as we do this, we're, there's a bit of a transition uh, this morning in the book of Judges. That cycle that we've been used to in the book of Judges, the, the, the cycle of, of Israel kind of going their own way, God sending in an oppressor, and then Israel crying out, and then God sends in a judge to deliver them. That, that cycle is now gone. We're, we're, we're now past that. And this morning, we're going to see a bit of an abrupt change as we focus in on what first seems like just some kind of regular folks, what's going on in regular old Israel and how dysfunctional we're going to see that they are. But we're going to also begin to see how the Levites, the the ones who should be leading Israel, who should be leading them spiritually, um, are failing as well. Um, As we approach the word this morning, let's let's go to the word and Lord in prayer. Let's do that now. Father, we uh, thank you uh, for your word before us. We ask that you would uh, speak to us through it, that you would uh, convict us uh, this morning through your word, and that you would help us to see Jesus, we pray. Pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Just um, the other night, I was watching some old Law & Order episodes in preparation for any Law & Order fans. Jack McCoy is coming back in just a couple of weeks. It's I'm probably the only one, anyway. Um, anyway, uh, one of the episodes, there was a very dysfunctional family on it where you have a uh, daughter and a mother who are de- both dating the same guy. And it's like, this is really dysfunctional, right? They're like, this is really messed up. There's something really wrong going on there. And I couldn't help but think of the book of Judges, uh, what we've kind of already traveled through and the incredible dysfunction we've seen so far in Israel and the dysfunction we're going to see today. Um, as we see this one, as we kind of zoom in on one household, as we see the dysfunction in the Levites, as we see the dysfunction this morning even in the tribe of Dan, and then we're going to see even greater dysfunction um, next week. Um, so let, let's look to it now. Um, chapter 17, let's just look at verse 1 to start us off. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now, now Micah's name tells us a lot. That, 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 that name means who is like Yahweh. Now you say, who is like Yahweh? Of course, the answer is nobody, right? No one. No one is like Yahweh. And, and as we move in through judges and things have been so dark, things have been so bad, we get to this place and you begin to think maybe we have a little bit of hope. There seems to be one family at least who, who must follow God enough to name their kid. No one is like Yahweh. So for a moment you have hope. And as we've learned in Judges, we should probably tend to toss that out the window. Let's look at verse 2. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Uh, Quickly, any hopes in Micah uh, or Dash, the, the one named who is like Yahweh, has stolen a small fortune from his mom. Okay, and, and what takes place here to, to help us understand is he stole the money from his mom. His mom didn't know who stole it, so she uttered a curse on whoever stole it. Micah heard it, and he becomes scared because he's like a kind of superstitious guy. He, he's very concerned. He doesn't want whatever curse to come down upon him, so what does he do? He goes back to his mom and says, Mommy, I took it. And so he brings it back to her, just hoping, and she seems to forgive him. She seems to be 
quasi-faithful, blessed be my son by the Lord. We're beginning to be tempted again to find some hope. We move on to verse 3. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord. Again, it sounds good. Of course, y'all are already reading ahead. Um, if, he was really ded- if she was really dedicating to the Lord, she would have taken it to Shiloh, where the t- tabernacle was. It wasn't very far down the road from him. Um, but instead, we read on in verse 3, from my hand, for my son to, take, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I'll restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mom, he gave it back. His mother took the 200 pieces of silver, gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. <laughs> How messed up is this? She, she said, I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord. But what does she do? She turns it into an idol. Now, you see this kind of double language of carved image and metal image. Probably what it is is like a carved statue that's then encased in the silver. And, and she gives it to her son, Micah. And what does Micah do? He goes and he puts it in his shrine. Verse 5, and, and it was made, and it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and, and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became a priest. Here's Micah. He, he has a shrine. A, a shrine is like, you know, the house that you'd put your gods in, and, and he has one, and he makes an ephod, and ephod is like the priestly garment that a priest would wear. Um, now, he may have made this so that he could put it on his idol, you know, to dress up his idol, to make his idol look nice, um, or he may have made it, and maybe it didn't fit so well on the idol, and he gave it to his son, who he makes a priest. This is crazy. He ordains his own son to be his priest. He, he's created his own little worship system. This is syncretism at its worst. And even just these first few verses, you've probably noticed it. There's some deference to Yahweh. There's some deference. We, we see the Lord showing up, right, in their language and, and in the way they're seeking to supposedly worship. And yet that, that worship of Yahweh, the worship of the Lord, is like mixed and matched with the, the ways that they want to worship. And the problem, of course, is that God has already told Micah, has already told his mom how he's to be worshipped. And in fact, and I want to bring up a, a map here for you, just give you a little bit of picture of, of where we're at, um, if we can pull it up, that, and you can probably barely see it, so we're going to zoom in, so that's, that's out, and then we zoom in, you can see Micah's house, right? And then you see Shiloh, just to the north, that's where the tabernacle was, that's where the house of God is. That's not very far. It's not a very long walk to get there, it's just kind of down the road a piece or two, you know, it's, it's not that far away. They have access to the whole priestly system. They have access to the tabernacle. They have access to the house of God. The mother wanted to dedicate the money. What should she have done? She should have just walked down to Shiloh, given it over to the priests. But instead, what do they do? They create their own little place of worship, <laughs> a place of worship that in some ways sort of mimics or tries to mimic in some ways what's going on in Shiloh. Um, of course, our author of Judges gives his commentary on it, verse 6. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see this refrain that's so common in the book of Judges. You see, Micah was not free to worship in just any way that he wanted. Uh, He he was not allowed to just willy-nilly just violate the first two commandments. Do you remember them? You shall have no other gods uh, before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or is in the waters under the earth. He, he wasn't allowed to just go out and create his own new priestly system, right? 
You know, ordaining his son as a priest, it's silly. He wasn't allowed to just go and create this, this religion that just, you know, fit his personality, fit his whims, fit his wants, fits his desires. Because his faith was not meant to be this individualistic faith that he could just kind of create his own thing as he wanted. Just as our faith, as we're gathered here this morning, isn't this individualistic thing for us to just create in any way that we want. Sometimes I think we're kind of like that my pillow guy. You know, we're able to go online, we can pick out the pillow that's going to fit us best, you know. Try to, you know, around our desires, you know, whether we like it soft and fluffy or we like it firm and, and we create my religion, my Christianity. We create our own version based off of our whims, our desires, our longings. We, we create our own personalized religion, but that's not the faith that we have. What do we see the, the, the people of the early church doing in Acts 2 after Peter preaches a sermon? What do we see them doing? They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. The author of Hebrews, of course, tells us not to ne- neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, this isn't our my Christianity thing where we go off and we pick the things that we want, the, the things that are, make us feel good, that they fit us well, and we can be so tempted to do that, right? We can be so tempted to create a faith that is actually created in our image instead of the image of our great God. And that's very dangerous. And we try to create our own religion, and that's what we see Micah doing here. Creating his own thing, mixing and matching what he thinks fits best. And, and he does that through introducing idolatry, which is this terrible, terrible thing. As I was thinking through idolatry, I was reminded of Isaiah 44. My mind often goes there when I, when I think of idolatry, because in Isaiah 44, the author's just making fun of idolatry. Let me just read a little bit of it to you, starting at verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes. He marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in the house. He cuts down the cedars. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and he warms himself and he kindles a fire and he bakes bread. And he makes a god and he worships it. He makes it into an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied and also he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire and the rest of it. (laughs) With the rest of it he, he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down and worships it. And he says, Deliver me for you are my god. What is the author doing here? Making fun of just the incredible silliness that is idolatry. That with the same substance, you go and you, you warm yourself or you, you, you bake your bread. And then you go and you craft some of it to worship. And you fall down before it and say, save, save me. It seems like such a silly pursuit. But that's precisely the pursuit that Micah is after here um, in our story this morning. Taking something of creation and beginning to worship it. And, and you and I, we can be prone to do the same. Let's not just discount that, oh, I'm not like Micah. Or I don't have a little shrine in my house. I think we do have shrines. They just look an awful lot different and we've gotten used to them and they've become kind of acceptable 
You know, I was reminded of uh, a little bit older uh, animated movie, Over the Hedge. I don't know if many of you remember it, but um, there's a raccoon named RJ, and he steals all the food from the bear who's about to hibernate, right? And the bear gets very angry at him, and you've got to bring back my food. And so what does RJ do? He goes to the humans, he, because the humans have tons of food. So he's going to go to the humans, and he's getting some of his animal friends to help him to go steal the food, right? And, and he says this. He says, the humans, they, they've always got food with them. We eat to live. They live to eat. Uh, Let me show you what I'm talking about. And he he goes on these vignettes of showing them different pictures of humans. You know, the human just stuffing their face with food. Their face, you know, the mouth is called the pie hole. That's their pie hole. Uh, uh, Humans sitting on the sofa just eating bag of chips or whatever. That's that's what they call a couch potato. You you know, there's a woman on the phone. That's what they use to summon the food as she's on the phone, you know, ordering delivery. And then the next picture is of her at the doorway, you know, as the delivery man. And that's the portal through which they pass the food. Um, And then they show a family sitting at the dinner table, bowing their head in prayers, all the foods right around it, and said, that's their altar. That's where they worship the food. And then shows an antacid commercial. That's what they eat whenever they have too much food. And then shows a woman on on a treadmill. That's what they do to try to get rid of the guilt of eating too much. RJ says, food, food, food. You think humans have enough? Well, they don't. For humans, enough is never enough. Is that you? Is that me? Enough is never enough, be it, be it food, money, work, success, sex, appro- approval of others. We, we could fill it in with all sorts of things, can't we? All sorts of things that we look to that, that never seem to be quite enough. You see, we still have shrines today. Maybe we've made them kind of socially acceptable in our homes, but we still have shrines of these things that, that we worship. What, what, what is in your shrine? Augustine said this, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. What is that for you? A couple of questions. You may have heard similar ones before. What is it that you look toward? You think, if I, if I just had that, if I could just have that, then I would be happy. Or are there things in your life maybe that you're, you're willing to preserve at all costs, that you're willing to protect? Nobody can get to. Don't even get near it. Maybe you're even willing to sin in order to protect certain things in your life. Likely there you're going to find your idols. Or are there things maybe that you're even willing to sin in order to get? Likely there we find our idols. What causes you frustration? What makes you anxious? What brings resentment? to the forefront of your mind, bitterness. What makes you angry? What makes you depressed? Likely, as you answer those questions, you begin to see what your idols are. What, what are the things that you rely on whenever things get really tough? Another way of asking it, what is it that you self-medicate with that you go to when things are difficult that you think are going to somehow make things better? These questions, the answers to these questions, they lead us to our idols, What is it that we worship? We're not really that much different than Micah, I don't think. And it's here that our heart begins to really show. Our heart really begins to show as to what it's really about and and how our hearts are set on so many things that they should not. Now, for for Micah, it gets a little bit worse. It doesn't get better as we continue in the story. Verse 7, now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah 
of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Now, so here's this Levite. Now, everything in this story tells us that things are really messed up, and we won't necessarily catch it. But the Levites were, were sent out into Israel, and they, there were certain cities that they were to go to, were to be their home bases. And you can just guess from, uh, from the way things go in Judges, Bethlehem was not one of those places. A Levite shouldn't have been, that, that's not one of their main places, one of the 48 cities that they would have been, been ministering in. And not only that, what do we see this Levite doing? He's like wandering around. He's like wandering around looking for work. Levites, the priests, they, they don't wander around looking for work. They go where the Lord calls them. That's not the way this is supposed to work. And we see already here in our story the decay of the Levites. The Levites, the priestly class, the, the ones who were to spiritually lead Israel. And now we just have this Levite just wandering around looking for work. Now Micah runs into him. You can just imagine Micah here, you know. <laughs> We've already met him. We can, we can just know where things are going to go. He asks Levite, where do you come from? He says, well, I'm going, I'm going to sojourn. I'm trying to find a place to sojourn. I'm trying to find a place to go. And so what does Micah say to him? He says, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year, suit of clothes, and you're living. And the Levite went in. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. M- Micah here, he sees an opportunity. You know, up to this point, he just has one of his sons as a priest. Now he's got an honest-to-goodness Levite just came in to town. He's got like the real thing. He gets excited. I could have a real priest for my shrine. And so he makes a deal. The Levite, I'll pay you a little bit of money. I'll take care of you. And the Levite tells you a lot about the Levite. He says, yeah, that sounds like a great business deal. This sounds really good. This will be good for you. It's going to be good for me. And what does Micah say as he thinks about this? Verse 13. Now I know. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. I've made it. This is good. Don't miss here what Micah is doing. He, he, he thinks that getting this Levite is going to make God bless him. He, he's treating God like a vending machine. You know, you, you, you put in your coin into the vending machine, or I guess we don't really put coins in, you put in your paper money, or you, you, you do your credit card through now, or whatever. whatever. You, you put it in, and you press the button to, if it's working right, to get out what you want. And isn't that what Micah's doing? He's, it's just really religious tokenism. He's, he's trying to manipulate God to, to give him what he wants. And he thinks, now that I have a priest, well, I've got it made. This will be easy. This will be good. God has to bless me now. He, he, he has to. Now, do you ever treat God similarly? I, I fear that we do. That, that too often, not only do we struggle with idols in our heart, but then we, we go to God and we, we treat him like he's a vending machine. We go to him, we, we, we think that somehow we can buy his affections. We think that somehow we can give to him so that, and really when we give to him, so often we're just really giving so that we'll get back, right? Let's be honest about the way our hearts so often work. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? You know, it, it may look like, God, if you will do this for me, 
in my life or in my, my family's life or whatever, then I will. Or sometimes it's a little more subtle than that. I don't know if it's really that subtle. But it's like, God, I'm going ri- to do a lot better. I'm going to stop that sin. I'm going I'm to start reading my Bible. I'm gonna do, you, know, you, you come up with the plan of how you're going to be a really righteous, really good person. And, and God, could you? Would you bless me? And what are you really doing? You really think somehow that you can um, put, put your money into the vending machine and get out of God precisely what you want. We think somehow that ramping up our religiosity is going to make God bless us. That's what Micah's doing in the story, isn't he? He's, he, he thinks he can, he can make it happen. He can create this religion of his own and oh, how it falls apart. Now, this, what's going on here with, with Micah, we, we see that what's happening in small way here with Micah, it's going to spread in our story. As we look to chapter 18, we read this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen upon them. Now, back in the Judges 1, we actually read about this, that, that Dan, they couldn't seem to, they've been promised a land, but they couldn't seem to take it. Okay? Now, likely that's because of Dan's unfaithfulness. So, so what do we see Dan doing? What, what, where have they gotten to? Have they pursued trying to get the land that God has promised them? No, they decide, Let, let's go find some other land, some land that's easier for us to take. And so on their way, they, they send out some spies, five spies, and, and these five spies, as they're working their way up north, that making their way through Ephraim, they, they find themselves at Micah's house, staying the night. And we see in verse 3, as they're, um, as they're staying at Micah's house, they hear a familiar voice. Now, it probably it is, they, they, they're probably hearing a familiar accent, like, you're not from Ephraim. You don't have an Ephraimite accent. You, you, you're talking, you have a Levitical accent or a, a Jude accent, whatever it is. So they recognize something about it. So they say to him, well, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business? And Micah says, that, or um, the Levite says, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me. I've become his priest. And then they say, oh, you're a priest. Oh, this is great. We're on our way up. So we got a question for you. Can you inquire of God? Please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And what does the priest say? He says, go in peace. The journey on which you are going is under the eye of the Lord. <laughs> he's a very bad priest. Obey, you, know, you, you understand what he's saying. Wherever you go, God's going to be watching. He'll, he'll see it. It's under God's eye. He doesn't tell them anything, basically. But they take off. They think somehow they have the blessing from God. They misunderstand. So they, they head on. They go on to Laish up in the north. They see that it's a good place, okay? They say, oh, this is good land. We think we can take it. So they go back. They report to the rest of the tribe of Dan. We think we got this place. We think we can take it. We only need like 600 guys. So they take 600 guys with them, and they start making their way back up north. And as they're making their way back up north, they find themselves again in Micah's neck of the woods. And they say this in verse 14. The, the five men who had gone to scout out, they told their brothers, do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, a household gods, a carved image, a metal image. Now, therefore, consider what you will do. They say, there's, there's a shrine here in this town. Now, if you're a good Israelite, what should you have done? If you were a, a good part of God's army, what should you have done? You would have gone and destroyed, destroyed this place. 
you think for a moment, maybe there's another opportunity. Maybe the people and judges are going to do what's right, but they don't ever do that, I don't think. We read in verse 17, the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up. They entered, and they took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image while the priest stood by the entrance with the 600 men. Now, the priest asked him, what in the world are you doing? Why are you taking these things? What's going on here? Verse 19, he says, keep quiet. They, say, they tell him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? <laughs> Hearing that, you see what the, the priest says in verse 20? Priest's heart was glad. He just got a promotion. He went from just being this guy's priest, now he gets to be the priest of like an entire tribe. This is wonderful. He just got a promotion and he doesn't see the incredible silliness of it all and the foolishness of it all. He, it completely misses him. Now Micah, when Micah gets word of what happened, what does he do? He goes and he grabs, I guess, some of his neighbors and, and they go and they, they pursue the, the, the Danites. And when they come up behind them, you what do the Danites say? Verse 23, they say, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? They're like saying, why, why are you coming after us? What's going on? Of course, they know what's going on. But Micah's answer is so telling. Verse 24, he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? What have I left? How do you then ask me, what is the matter with you? We see Micah in despair. His idols have been taken away from him. He doesn't know what to do. Have you ever felt like that? When your idols are threatened, when they've been taken away, and you no longer have them? You see, Micah was convinced that these idols, he was convinced that, that this priest would somehow make him right with God. He's convinced. And yet we see what happens to it. It all falls apart. These, these idols, this priest, they, they, they can do nothing for him. He goes back home, no doubt sad, because they threaten him in verse 25. They say, don't let your voice be heard, or angry fellows are going to come upon you. You'll lose your life, your whole household. Micah goes back sad. Now the Danites, they keep going. They, they, they think that they're in good position now to take on Laish, because Why? They have their own priest now. They got this worship center that they're taking, this mobile worship center that they're taking with them, all these idols and stuff. Things are going to be great. And the Dan, they do conquer the city. And they rename it Dan. They rename it after themselves. And then what do they do? Verse 30. The people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until this day until the day of the captivity of the land. You see, what do they do? They do in macro, in big picture, what Micah was doing in micro. Micro was, Micah was doing this just in his own household, and maybe some of his neighbors, I'm sure, it seems like probably got to take part in it. But now the Danites, they, they set up a whole worship center for the tribe in this new city, and it becomes a center, center place for them. In some ways, that's not even the biggest reveal. It's not that they, the Danites too, are creating this religion and that's right in their own eyes. But did you catch, we finally find out who the Levite is. 
Up until this point of the story, we've just been hearing that he's the Levite, he's the Levite, he's the Levite. Then the next last verse of this chapter, we find out who he is. We find out that his name is Jonathan, (laughs) the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. This should be very telling. (laughs) Moses' grandson. Now, it could be the way text is written. It could be like his great-great-great-grandson or whatever, but most likely it's just his grandson. This is how far Israel has fallen. That Moses' own grandson is this Levite leading worship first in Micah's household and then for the Danites leading this false worship. How incredibly dysfunctional God's family has become. Now, this is a very dark kind of almost sad story. It's like, what do you do? Where, where, there, there's very little positive. Any, I, we haven't confronted anything really positive yet. All we see is this dark kind of going farther and farther down into their foolishness. And I think for us to understand what we need to get from this, we must first see that the story is in here. It's in the scriptures so that we will see our foolishness, I think. Not just to see, yes, I mean, Micah is incredibly foolish in the story. Okay? Um, Jonathan, the Levite, he's incredibly foolish in the story. The Danites are incredibly foolish as they worship these idols, think they can make some sort of self-made religion. But it's not, of course, just theirs. It's also our idolatry. We, we need to recognize our idolatry, our worship of these things of the creation for, for what they really are, that we, we, we take these things and we think somehow that they can bring us hope that they never can. We think somehow that our money is going to bring us hope that it's never going to. Our kids are going to bring us hope that they're never going to. Our jobs, our success, our whatever you put in there. This is why the stories in Scripture. We need to see the danger and the foolishness as we try to live out our own little personalized my pillow version of, of the faith that fits us, that scratches our itches. We need to see the foolishness of our own idols and see the problem of becoming so protective of them and maybe being like Micah in despair when his idols are threatened or taken away. And it's only when we begin to see and understand this foolishness for what it really is that we can begin to move forward positively. Um, And we see it in the very last verse. There's a little bit of positivity in verse 31. This is what we read. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. I mentioned this earlier, where where the tabernacle was, where, where God's house was. In the midst of all of this that's going on in our passage this morning, in the midst of all that's going on in the book of Judges, God is present amongst the Israelites. He remains present among them. His house remains among them right there in the center in Ephraim at Shiloh. He's right there in their midst even while they they run off in their foolishness. I shared with you a little bit of Isaiah 44 a minute ago that, that just makes fun in so many ways of the foolishness of idolatry. But it then says this, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. 
You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. Your sins like mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. What are the people of Israel told? They're told the foolishness of their idols. And then they're told about the great God who has already rescued them, has already saved them, has already redeemed them. We too, this morning, need to be reminded that even in the midst of the foolishness of our idols, we need to be reminded of the wonder, the wonder of the grace of God in our Savior Jesus Christ. There's a moment in the return of the king, the, the last of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Pippin, one of the hobbits, is standing at the gate of the city. The, um, the witch king is, is about to come in. Okay, it's, The city is about to be destroyed. All hope has been lost. And then Pippin hears the horn, way off in the distance, the horn of the riders of Rohan. This is what Tolkien writes. But Pippin rose to his feet, as if a great weight had been lifted from him. And he stood listening to the horns. It seemed to him that they would never break his heart with joy. It seemed that they were going to break his heart with joy. And never in after years could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. Why? Why? Because every time he heard it, he was reminded of the salvation that had come that day. As the riders of Rohan came in, and the, the, the lives of many of them that had been given to rescue that city. We need that reminder too this morning. The reminder of what Christ has, has done for us, how he has rescued us, how he has saved us. You see, we, we can find ourselves like that foolish idol maker in Isaiah 44 praying to our idols, please save me. Isn't that kind of what we do? We replace them with God and we say, oh, you can save me. You can make me happy. You can make me fulfilled. And the wonder is that for the believer that even while you're doing that, even while we're doing that, Christ has already rescued us, has already saved us. Jesus says to us, I, I already have rescued you. Remember Colossians 1, for in him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you and me, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you who were sunk in your idolatry, confused by the foolishness of it and, and taken in by it, What do we read? He, Jesus Christ, is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, not as idolaters, but holy and blameless, above reproach for him. See, I think Paul does hear what I think we need to hear so much. Paul reminds us here of the foolishness of our idolatry. Once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We need to be reminded of how far amiss we so often go. 
but we need to be reminded to look. To look to the one true God, our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who came to rescue idolaters. It's incredible. Micah's Micah's name says, who is like Yahweh? No one. No one. No one is like our great God. The one who came to save and redeem sinners. The one who came to rescue idolaters. No one. No one is like him. Do you believe this morning that incredible good news? That incredible good news of the gospel? That he came to save you and rescue you? Not so that you could remain in your idolatry, but that you could worship him. The one who rightfully deserves it. You see, if we believe this, if we truly do, you and I, we need to seek more and more to ferret out our idolatry. Those questions I was asking earlier, we need to think through those things more deeply. What is it that I'm really worshiping? We need to ferret those things out. We need to expose them and bring light to them and put them to their rightful death. In turn, and turn to the one who truly does deserve our worship, who deserves all of our worship. Those idols that we worship, they will never save you. You know the futility of it. We all do. But we're foolish people, aren't we? And we keep pursuing them. Maybe this time, they fail us every time, don't they? But the one, we come back to that question, the question of Micah's name, who is like Yahweh? No one. No one is like our great God. No one is like our Savior. No one is like the one who went to his death so that we could have eternal life. Would we seek to place our worship not on the things of this world, but upon him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know, um, you know far better than, than we do the idolatry that uh, so invades our heart in so many ways. Um, we, we, we get used to it. Um, we are so often oblivious. Oh, Father, would you help to expose the idols of our heart more and more. Oh, would you help us to desire and long to, to see these idols rightfully die? Would you help us to long more and more to worship you, to give you the praise and the worship that you rightly deserve? Would you help us to truly worship you? For you deserve it. We pray all of this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.